Good morning. Where are the athletes in the house? Have you ever, have you ever made the basket and then the coach chews you out because you didn't run the right play? Because this is not the way it was called? Where are the piano performance majors? Have you ever played the song exactly as it is written? You hit every note, but Dr. Lin or Dr. Park Kim says, your heart is not in it. You did it right, but not perfectly. So what do we do when doing the right thing is not good enough? when doing the right thing is not good enough. You've heard of Haiti, right? Yes? Where are the Haitian students in the house? Nobody. They are some, I know. Well, I'm from Haiti, and uh, in Haiti, you've heard about the struggles of Haiti, poverty and this and that. The other side of the story is because of the challenges that people face, there's this value that education is wealth. So kids grow up with this understanding that you need to get a really good education. Parents, teachers kind of drill this into our heads that you cannot take this for granted. So they go above and beyond to make sure you perform. There's a 14-year there's a process where you've got average benchmark that has to be met, and it's performance-based. So you don't go up a next grade simply because you've gotten older. You go up the next grade if you have met those benchmarks. Now, if your mother happens to be part of the system and she's an elementary school teacher, even if you've surpassed those benchmarks in first grade, you have to redo that grade because you haven't learned how to write properly. You can tell I'm still scarred from this because I'm still talking about it. <laughs> I don't remember it, I don't remember it. She just keep talking about how proud she, is, proud she is about looking at my handwriting. She is proud that she made me redo first grade because I couldn't write then. I keep thinking, well, I could have been one year ahead, but she's saying, look how well you're writing. What I do remember was when I was in seventh grade, what's, what will be seventh grade here, um, top of the class, we, we, got, we get tested every three months, and um, this, it was the second trimester. My teacher chewed me in front of the class because although I was still top of the class, I dropped points from the first trimester. I got home crying and indignant because I couldn't understand why I'm still first in class, but I'm still getting chewed up because I did not perform as he expected. My mom tried to explain to me why it's important to perform to the best of my abilities, but I couldn't listen at that time because she's part of the system, you see. So I thought, you know, I'm gonna game the system. I was still young, but smart. 
I decided that for the first trimester, I'm just gonna do just enough. And the second trimester, I'll do a little bit more. And the third trimester, I'll do a little bit more. That way, I'm still improving, right? So, no chewing up, because I'm still getting better. And I was successful at it for about four years. Until one day, the principal, by then I was in high school, called me up and said, and said I don't think you are doing the best of your abilities. What's going on? And I came clean as to what was happening. And he helped me understand why there's a difference between performance and identity. But there's also a correlation between the two, you see? Are you performing because that performance has become your identity? Or are you performing because this performance is an outflow of your identity? Let me say it again. Are you performing because your performance has become your identity? Or are you performing because it is an outflow of that identity? You see, we've been going through, we're going to be going through Matthew. And Jesus Christ is teaching his disciples about what does right living looks like. And here today, we're going to look at Matthew 5, verses 17 to 32. Do not think I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And there it is. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you'll certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, as you read Matthew, you're going to find places when Jesus Christ is challenging the Pharisees. There will be times when he'll say, do not be like them. But here he's not so much saying, do not be like them. Here he's saying, be better. He's not negating the righteousness of the Pharisees. He's telling his disciples, those who, those who are gathered and listening to him, to say, your righteousness needs to surpass that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. That's about performance. That's about identity. It needs to surpass it. But you see, he's also raising the bar on what that looks like. Because the question we need to ask ourselves is then, so what is, what is the righteousness of the Pharisees? If you need to know what it is that you need to surpass, you need to know what it is that you do. 
As Bible Monday continues, you'll get to see a little bit more of what, what that interaction looks like. But here for today, Jesus Christ makes a distinction on three levels, three things, murder, adultery, and then divorce. First, he tells them, you've heard it said that you should not commit adultery, but I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery in his heart. You see, the Pharisees had gotten to the point where they were gaming the system. They understood what the right thing to do was, and they got really, really good at it. That's why Jesus Christ will talk to, about them about, you know, whitewashed tomb. Outside, it looks perfect. Everything is clean and crisp. But inside, it stinks. Rotten bones, decay. It is very easy, it is very easy to see the rules and follow the rules and then just go through the motions. But our heart's not in it. It's easy to hit all of the right notes and have no musicality. Jesus Christ here is shifting the people's understanding from a performance that's done for its own sake. He's trying to shift the disciples' understanding from a kind of doing that leads to hypocrisy. He's trying to shift their understanding from a doing that's just mechanical, that's just rote. You learn it, you do it, repeat. You do it, repeat. But there's no change. There's no transformation. So Jesus Christ is shifting things from adultery to lost management. It said, don't do it. Jesus Christ says, don't even think about it. Because you see at the time, it was a legal process. There was a legal process involved in terms of it's not just that you have done, it can be proven. Did you have witnesses? So if you couldn't prove that you have done it, then it was fine. But Jesus Christ is saying, don't even think about it. About murder, he will say, you've heard it said, Long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. And anyone who says to a brother or sister, Racha, which is an Aramaic term of contempt, that person will be answerable to the court. Anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger. Again, 
just from a basic legal system unless you can prove that you have actually killed somebody, then there's no responsibility. But Jesus is shifting it from murder to anger management. Because murder doesn't just happen. Or maybe you can say there's unpremeditated murder. But Jesus Christ is trying to change his disciples' mind here from focusing on the action to the kind of way of life that may lead to that action. He's shifting it from doing to being. Shifting it from performance-driven life to an identity-rooted life. And now about anger, you, find, you see that Jesus Christ goes on and gives direction on whether you're right or whether you're wrong. If you're offering your gift to the altar and there remembers that your brother or sister has something against you, Leave your gift in front of the altar. First, go and reconcile with them. Don't be angry, even if you're right, and you think they're wrong. Go make it right. He goes on and says, settle matters quickly with your adversary who's taking you to court. Do it while you're still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer. This implies that then you are wrong. Are you with me? First example of what you should do if you think you're right in the situation. Second example of what you should do if you think you're wrong. Well, not if you think, if you actually are wrong in the situation. Murder, adultery, divorce, he goes on and says, it has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery. Some of your other translation may translate it differently. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. The language here is very interesting because Jesus Christ is dealing, again, I mentioned earlier, even the case of adultery, here talking about divorce, his language is very technical and very legal. In the Greek, the, the thing that's translated sexual immorality is actually, a, he's using a legal term there, talking about a word of fornication, a word of sexual immorality. It's, it's the idea that except in court, the witness has been proven that she's been sexually immoral. In judgment, it's been proven that that's what she has done. What's going on here is that Jesus Christ is curbing a practice where these people will just send a woman away for any particular reason. I no longer like the way you walk. Here's a certificate of divorce. Go back to your father. 
I don't like the way you cook anymore. Here's a certificate of divorce. Go home. You've you've gotten old. Here's a certificate of divorce. Go home. Men were disposing of their wives for any reasons that they wanted. And Jesus is curbing that practice. But you see, just like in murder, right or wrong, here Jesus Christ is also keeping responsibility on both parties, except for sexual immorality, but while at the same time preventing this kind of double jeopardy that women were being subjected to. Again, here in the language, some of your translation may say cause her to be an adulterer or cause her to commit adultery. The, the Greek here is in the passive voice, which means when a man does that, he puts the woman in a situation where she's going to be abused further. It's a passive voice. The English misses that. So it was an action that created a double jeopardy for the woman. And Jesus is curbing those practices, trying to teach his disciples, again, it's not just about what you do, but why you do it. When thinking about divorce, you go to chapter 19. Jesus again is teaching about divorce, and then they ask him, so why will, why will the law even allow this to happen? Because again, the Pharisees are not bad people. Jesus does talk about their righteousness. They're following what was in the law. Jesus is quoting the law. He starts by saying, I'm here to fulfill the law. But you see, there's a thing, there's a point in which doing the right thing became so mechanical that they forgot what it meant to be the right kind of people. They were content on doing the right thing and not being the right kind of people. Why did Moses allow it to happen? Why did God allow it to happen? And Jesus said, no, 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 you're getting this wrong. God allows it because your hearts were hard. His intention was never for this. And at the end of the conversation, one of them said, well, you know, if that's the way it is, then maybe we should not marry at all. They're missing the point. They're missing the point. What do you do when doing the right thing is not good enough? What does it mean for our righteousness to surpass the righteousness of the Pharisees? We may think about these and think, none of this is thing that we face. You don't have any temptation to murder anybody. All of you want to be faithful in your relationships. 
All of you are trying to do the right thing, but God is asking, Jesus is reminding us today that there's a fine line between performance and identity. Are you doing the right thing for show? The Pharisees got to do the right thing because he drew man's approval. Yay! They started to do the right thing because that right thing became all that they lived for. They were doing the right thing because that's all there was to it. But Jesus is saying, I want you to better. He's asking more of us. He's asking us not just to do the right thing, but to be the right kinds of people. Because you may ask then, what do murder, adultery, or divorce, what do those three things have in common? You see, all three of these are outcomes of broken relationships. All three are outcomes of broken relationships. These things came about in spite of people doing the right thing. You've heard it said, is a rehearsal of the law that was given to the children of Israel. However, in doing what was said, they lost sight of the right kind of thing that God wanted them to do the right kind of people God wanted them to be, the right kind of person God was seeking after. In all three of these things, Jesus Christ is moving them from just obeying the law in doing what the law asks to actually being the kind of people God wants them to be. The Pharisees were very successful in following the law. They were very successful in getting man's approval but they, were, they went to such extreme that it became very oppressive. If you're just doing it for a show, it becomes oppressive. It's heavy. But Jesus wants you to get to a point where it's an obedience that outflows from your identity. You cannot but do what he's asking because this is who you truly are. He wants us to move from a righteousness that focuses on doing to a heart righteousness that focuses on who God is and what he wants of us. What do you do when doing the right thing is not good enough? Be the right kind of person he wants you to be.